What's up, everybody? Welcome to oh yes, the Brady Quinn Football Show featuring Will Brinson. I'm <laughs> I'm Will Brinson. This never gets old for me. I'm glad you laugh at it. That's Brady Quinn. It's uh, Monday night as we record this Tuesday morning for you as you listen to it. And we just watched the New York Football Giants lose a close one. Uh, the the saying goes, Brady, good teams win, great teams cover, and the New York Giants. Um, you know, I know you you don't lock in on this as much because you're you know, and someone who actually played football and not a degenerate. Uh, but the Giants were dogs by four, and everybody who had the Falcons were feeling pretty good for most of the night, and then they snuck through the back door and covered. Um, and uh, it's it's a misleading 23-20, isn't it? Right. It, it is very misleading, and uh, I think as we make a big deal about – Pat Shermer deciding to go for two when they were down with 14, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Now we know the real reasoning. I mean, he knew they were going to lose the game. He just wanted to make sure they had a chance to cover. That's what he was trying to do. He was just trying to make sure he got within those four points. He had he was he was huge with the Falcons. He was actually trying to miss both two point conversions and was hoping the Fal- <laughs> the Falcons would cover. He definitely had the he had the over two and he knew he wouldn't be able to get it. Yeah. I, I mean, I what do you? All right. So what? You know, I did an HQ, a CBS Sports HQ hit. And by the way, if you're not watching CBS Sports HQ, what are you doing? Real sports news for real sports fans. Or even, as you said last week, Brady, maybe non-sports. I mean, like, you know, if you just casually like sports, come and watch HQ too. CBSSports.com yeah. slash live, 24-7 streaming with great talent like Brady. I'm on there. Pete Prisco, Brian McFadden. Uh, we'll talk about him and his cousin here in a minute. Uh, but, but ton, like, I mean, it's just, it is, if you aren't watching, you're not winning. And it's, 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 it gets rid of the fluff and dies right into sports. So check out CBS Sports HQ. But I did an HQ hit with Nick Costas, and um, you know his his sort of his he was asking me who do you blame for this Giants thing? So wh- where do you pin more of the blame for the Giants and their struggles? And they're now one in five. Uh, do you put it on? Or excuse me, they're one in six. Do you put it on the offensive line, or do you put it on Eli Manning? Is it on coaching? Is it on the front office? Where where do you pin most of the blame? I would say you could spread it around. I really don't like playing the, the blame game of putting most of the blame on one person because I don't believe that that's how it works with football. Um, so there, there should be an equal share placed on the offensive line, which has just struggled the entire year uh, with pass protection, a consistent running game. It seems like at times they're not on the same page. They don't communicate and pass off games very well. So the O-line's been an issue. Eli Manning and – you know, I don't even know if this is so much his fault as it is just the organization and not having a secession plan mm. for this. Because we're now in an era in the NFL where unless you're an elite passer, and please don't, let's not get into the uh, word I just used as Joe, far as elite. So Joe, Joe, Flacco, Mc, Joe Flacco and Bob. <laughs> yeah, well, forget that. But Burger <laughs> McFarlane used it enough on Monday Night Football. Oh where I, just, I, I, don't, I don't ever want to hear the word again. Matt Ryan is um, elite, guys. Matt Ryan. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like, all right, all right, all right. Matt Ryan's elite. Fine, yeah, just stop like, saying like, it. Like, like, like he didn't already win an MVP and go to a Super Bowl. Like, right. we, like we care whether or not he's a leader. Burger McFarlane thinks he is. Right. Anyway, the, the point is this. <laughs> um, Eli Manning's to the point now where he's not passing uh, the ball as well as he once did, and he's definitely not ever. He's never been confused. The guy was mobile, so the issue is when you combine the fact they can't protect him, he can't do much other than get the ball out quick because he can't move to make a throw or scramble to make something happen and buy time like a lot of other quarterbacks can right now who are coming to the league. He's a sitting duck, and you know that 
you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to work. The bottom line is, at this point, I think we've seen enough to know that this is the end. There's nothing they can do to come back at this point. They are out of playoff contention. The Giants should be looking forward to 2019 to either draft a quarterback or trade for one or sign one in free agency if you feel like there's going to be one available. Um, but at this point, it's over for Eli Manning. Um, and, then, and then you look at Pat Shermer. I thought that the play calling throughout the course of the season has also been up and down. You can look at games where I think you can justify some of the decisions, but you know it doesn't matter if it comes down to you know that, that the two-point conversion with down 14. I understand the math behind it. I get that. I, I, I know <laughs> what the stats say, that you improve your chance of winning the game. But the problem I have with the stats and the data is I don't feel like we have enough data. I don't know how good that information is only because there's so many variables in the NFL and with football where what's the stats on a two-point conversion when you run versus when you pass? What's the stats for your given team? I don't think there's enough to really conclude that you, know, you overall do have a better chance. I think the more teams, if they started going for two in those scenarios, if they're down 14 throughout the course of a game, the greater likelihood that conversion rate goes down because you're going to have a greater sample size, and then you regress to the mean. So people can challenge that all they want, but I think it's very, very hard for you to understand unless you play the game that matchups and the different variables that come into play when you go for a two-point conversion will skew those stats. So right now the analytics nerds are probably pounding their fists for what Pat Shermer did. <laughs> Guess what? They still lost, so it doesn't matter. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say, just the, the, the quarterback sneak at the goal line, by the yeah, way. That was terrible. The two that quarterback is, sneaks. It, 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 it's inexcusable. Because the first thing you, you have to go back to is Eli Manning. He's not fooling anyone. He's not going to sneak the football in. He can be upset with his own line, but that was the first thing I put it out. So the first two things that have plagued you the entire year, your own line and your quarterback, are the two things you then try to rely on in that scenario. Yeah, that's not going to work. Throw a fade. He either catches it or he doesn't. I'm talking he as an Odell Beckham. And if he doesn't, then, of course, the clock stops. Like, right. that's, that's the play call there. There is no quarterback sneak because you can't trust them in that instance. And by the way, there's a perfect example of, I'd love to see the data on what it is from first and goal from the one on quarterback sneaks. Because I'm sure the analytics would say, you should just quarterback sneak because that's what the stats show you. But there's an instance of why you don't for that specific reason. Anyway. It just, the, I, the I love how much you, I love how I love how much you hate analytics like that like like nerds. It, it's not that I hate analytics. It's that I hate bad information. Mm. You know, just because you have information doesn't make it good information. You better be able to uh, deduct the things out of that information that are worthless and that don't impact it, and then be able to apply it in specific scenarios so it's useful. I don't believe. Um, you can really do as much as people think with the data that you have in football because there are so many variables, right? It could be anything as simple as the field conditions that you play on, turf versus grass. Are you in a dome? Are you outside? What's the wind? What's the temperature? That's going to affect the ball flight. I mean, it could be anything that you're talking about in regards to passing and play calling and whether or not your offensive line is healthy or whether or not you've got a backup in. Um, there, there's so many things that play a variable that it's hard to break down um, how you can ultimately come up with data that I think you can use to then make 
extremely confident decisions in those moments. Well, that's I, that's more my concern with it. No, I think that's fair. And I, I would say this, Brady. I would say that I think if you're, uh, you know, if you're a fan of a team and you like what Pat Shermer did and you like what Doug Peterson did a few weeks ago when he was also aggressive and went for it in that situation, what you hope is that your team, and I mean, this is very easy to do. I don't know if NFL teams are doing it necessarily. What you hope is that your team is catering their analytical play calling sheet, as in the sheet that tells them, hey, you should go for two now. Hopefully they're catering it to their strengths and weaknesses. Like if the Giants convert 30% of their two-point conversions on running plays, you would hope that they would not say, all right, hey, Pat, you should go for two here blindly go for two and then Shermer calls a running play. You know what I'm saying? But like if they convert six, like for instance, the, I, th- I believe, firmly believe that the Carolina Panthers should be far more aggressive about going forward on fourth down scenarios and even, you know, going forward in two point conversion plays because they have Cam Newton, who to me is the best short yardage weapon in football. Now, I mean, and like, you know, the same goes for the, the Cowboys. Like they convert 75% of their fourth and short plays. They should be more aggressive about going for fourth and short. Now, to your point, it might reduce the number if they go for more. So I get it. And I, I do agree. Football is the, by far the hardest sport to quantify because of all the moving parts. Um, let's not get too far bogged down in an analytical conversation because I, I am curious. We just lost listeners. We, we just, people just stopped listening. No, 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 no. I think we haven't, I think, I think, I think that the people enjoy someone in his mother's basement talking to me. About, <laughs> uh, no, uh, but I, I am curious because you have looked at some of these college guys. What would, this is the other argument about the giant that's out there. I would like, people are fired, Giants fans are yelling at me. They're like, what's the big deal? We got Saquon. Now we'll stink for a year. We'll get a quarterback in the next draft. Uh, it, it doesn't work like that, guys. I wouldn't put, um, any of the top quarterbacks coming out in this year's draft ahead of the, the five that were taken in the first round this past year's draft. Now, granted, it's as early on in an evaluation process, but I've seen enough from Justin Herbert, enough from Drew Locke, enough from uh, Ryan Finley, your buddy down there in, 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 you know, playing for NC State, to know that I don't think these guys, to me, uh, compare as natural passers, um, top-end ability, um, dynamic ability to change a game with the way they, they can run, for example, like Lamar Jackson. I mean, like, let's just take this into account for, for a second. All the people I just named, Justin Herbert, Drew Locke, Ryan Finley, let's say Clayton Thorson. Jared Stidham. Um, Jared Stidham. He's yeah. having a terrible year. God. Terrible year. Yeah. Like, let's take into account, like, all those names. Are, are any of those guys Heisman Trophy winners? No. Okay, no. no. And, and last year you had two Heisman Trophy winners in that class. So if we're just using what the, the data, for example, since we keep – that's the hot word for tonight. We keep using that. If we just want to use what we know, what we've seen, you had two Heisman Trophy winners – in that group, okay, done. No, no one's, no, no one's, no one can even compete with that. Then you've got a guy who basically won a Pac-12 championship, won his conference, uh, lost very few games in Sam Darnold. Um, I, I don't know that people are going to have as good of a resume as him when you compare those guys, their records, how they played. Maybe Justin Herbert this year can win the Pac-12. Uh, still have to have to wait and see that. But at this point in time, I would, I would be willing to say I, see, I saw more throws from Sam Darnold that were NFL-type throws and more things that he did within the pocket and his movement and with, and with his feet that led me to think he would be a better pro at, at last year at this point in his career than Justin Herbert so far. Yeah. So I'd put him ahead of them. I think Josh Rosen 
his football IQ, his throwing motion, all that stuff, regardless of the lack of his success, he had one of the prettiest motions and throwing motion I've ever seen. So, you know, looking at him, looking at uh, Josh Allen, his arm strength, which, again, no one in this next class even comes close to, they all had assets that were by far and away, or something they could hang their hat on, better than this next class. And, and that's going to be the uphill battle. And that's where, if you're the Giants, you're hanging your hat on that, good luck. Yeah, I mean, the, plus the idea, the idea that your argument is, well, we made the smart move because we drafted a player who will make us stink even worse is inherently fallible because that, like, that's a terrible argument. If your argument is, we got this running back and now we stink, um, and look, there have been 16 guys taken in the first round, quarterbacks taken in the first round since 2014. Teddy Bridgewater, Johnny Manziel, Blake Bortles, Marcus Mariota, Jameis Winston, Paxton Lynch, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Mitch Trubisky, and then the five guys last year. The, the rea- the idea that a quarter, that quarterbacks just come along in the first round is, is really asinine because the jury is still out. I mean, maybe the jury's not out on Patrick Mahomes anymore, but he landed in a really good spot. Um, I think the jury is still out on all five of the guys that were taken this year. Paxton Lynch is a huge bust, but could, you know, still very young. Um, Carson Wentz and, and Jared Goff appear to be very good quarterbacks, but again, great landing spots. And then Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota, big question mark still. Uh, Bortles, well, Bortles just got benched last week. Yeah. Manziel's out of the league. But, but, but- but that's the the thing that you bring up is the most interesting part is you know if these guys are drafting in the top five top ten they're they're probably not good teams and right, that's ultimately right. what you th- you have to realize if you're a Giants fan and you say well we've got Saquon Barkley now we're going to draft our quarterback it won't matter you don't have an offensive line to protect him or even to help out Saquon Barkley running the football consistently so that's not going to matter I mean there's there's so many things that I think. Um, they're lacking right now. I mean, even their defense has taken a huge step back compared to where it was in what was it 2015? Oh, and huge. Was, was three, yeah. 16 when they won 11 games. I mean, they, they they've even taken a step back from what they were that year. So there are so many holes in this team that you know now you're looking at them being in a scenario like well maybe the Jets where they can be competitive at times, win some games, but they still got a lot of work to do. Like you're you're a couple years or a few years away from this thing ultimately working out and you seeing um, the, the benefits of drafting that quarterback in next year's draft may be paying off. Yeah. And that doesn't even include the suit. Like if you're, if you're not, if you're unsuccessful with that quarterback, you just rebooted on a five-year plan. All right. We have insulted the Atlanta Falcons by not talking about them first. They won the freaking game. They're uh, three and four. Now uh, do you, do you, do you know the undertaker gif where the undertaker pops up and it's like, he's, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking, do you know what I'm talking about? Is that yeah? Is that what you're saying for the I'm, I'm wondering, do you, you, you think the rising up? Are, are, oh, very nice. Uh, very little brotherhood there. Yeah, could the Atlanta <laughs> Falcons be uh, be doing an Undertaker gift rising up a bit here? Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm I'm not very bullish on this team yet. You know, we we've seen Matt Ryan before played really really well and not equate necessarily to wins. Um, he, he's done done that almost for his entire career there, and it helps when you've got Julio Jones and Sanu and Calvin Ridley and. Even Justin Hardy played a spot, and Hall it caught a big touchdown pass. I mean, they've got a bunch of weapons. Um, so you expect them to put up points. I just, you know, their defense played better, better versus a very bad Giants team. I don't know this, that this is the, like, litmus test for, you know, seeing where this team is at or if they're back. So I, I'm, I'm still waiting to see what they're going to look like over the course of the next few weeks and see if they can hang in there 
and get back into the competition for the NFC South because I don't think they're catching the Saints. At best, they'll be a wild-card team, and that's going to be the biggest question is if they can compete for a wild-card spot uh, in, in the NFC playoff picture. Um, you know, when I got, a, I got a theory I want to run by you. So is it possible that – and I, Bill Belichick is the guy I look at this when it comes to this theory. Is it possible – that smart coaches and smart teams are saying, you know what, these new rules and this the way that football operates in 2018 doesn't let us play lockdown, shutdown defense. We're going to focus on being an offensive team. We're going to worry about playing good red zone defense. And if you can be a great offensive team, you can win. If you you know if you can't for def- for defensive purposes, it's just too difficult. Is there any chance that that some coaches are leaning that way? Is that just insane? Well, first off, that that's always been the case. I mean, okay. so for example, you know, when when Charlie Weiss first came to Notre Dame and he yeah. came directly from New England, one of the things he harped on was situational awareness. And what that means is understanding the importance and significance of, for example, third and goal. So third and goal is the in my opinion the most important situation on the field because you face that scenario, okay, throughout the course of a game. Most people will say, well, what about fourth and goal? Well, fourth and goal is only safe for desperation, right? You're only really going forward on fourth and goal when you, you have to at that point, right? In the first quarter, you're probably not going forward on fourth and goal, right? right? Especially if it's, if it's from the eight or nine. So third and goal becomes pivotal because that's the difference where teams that go down there, they convert on third and goal, they score a touchdown, and then their opponents who go down, they can't convert, and they end up kicking a field goal. That four-point swing ends up being the difference. And they have understood that for a long period of time. They come in with an offensive package where you can go on down the line. They have multiple calls in every one of their play calls for a run, a pass, a drop-back pass, or um, a a blitz zero beater. So every single one of their calls encompasses that to prepare yourselves for any sort of situation because that's basically what you get when you're down in the red zone. They were doing that since 2005 when Charlie Weiss got to New England or to Notre Dame. I'm sure they were obviously doing that when they were winning Super Bowls before that. They've always put a precedent on understanding the third and goal scenario and playing better in the red zone in particular. And that's one of the reasons why I think Matt Patricia is a head coach right now for the Detroit Lions. But, you know, that's something that most teams harp on. It's just some teams are better than others at having a package for it. But that's, it's no secret anymore. I mean, this is something that's been practiced widely in the NFL. I think the biggest difference was, for example, you know, Pete Carroll um, in, in for the two-minute drill, that was one of the first things he installed. Most teams install like first and second down first when you go to training camp and all that. He would install second down, red zone, third, and third down because he wanted the things that you remember most to be the most critical scenarios. And I thought that was kind of interesting when he did that with the Seattle Seahawks back in 2013. And that year they obviously went on to win the Super Bowl. Uh, my theory there was that the Atlanta Falcons can get back in this, even though their their defense stinks. I, I do think you're right. I think it's an uphill battle, uh, but they will still have a chance. Okay, big news on Monday afternoon came down in the form of a, I think this qualifies as a blockbuster trade, Amari Cooper from the uh, Oakland Raiders to the Dallas Cowboys, who actually gave up a first-round pick for the former first-round wide receiver. You have to tell us right now, Brady Quinn, who won and who lost the trade, and you and you can't ever change your mind ever again. <laughs> well, I, I think right now the optics look like like the Raiders won the trade. Yes, no, and the, the here, Raiders here, did win the trade. They definitely won the trade. Here, here's why I say that. 
I had heard from a birdie Ooh. that a that you know maybe John Gruden was calling around. There was a couple of players he was looking to try to move. Amari Cooper is one. Carl Joseph is the other. And the word that you know I got from this team was he needed to make a a deal that made everyone forget about the fact that he lost out in the Cleo Mack trade. Wow. And. So that was, you know, the asking price was, you know, initially somewhere, uh, you know, middle rounds for what teams were saying. And then he said, no, maybe a second round. And then finally he kind of, you know, you know, you know, were sitting there waiting to see the season play out and say, okay, a first round will do it. And so now he looks like he won this trade because he got a first round pick for a guy um, who I still think has a ton of upside. I'd love to see. I hope he can be the player that we've seen at times him be in Oakland. Um, but I, I still think in the end, you know, he got the better, you know, better part of this deal, but he also needed to for perception because everyone right now, uh, is forgetting about the fact that he traded away a guy like Cleo Mack. And instead, even though he got good compensation in exchange for him, you know, it still doesn't help them win right now. And now that he did get a first round pick, now it looks like he's getting all his first round picks together. Their future is bright. Uh, the hard part is, for all those fans in Oakland who have to sit through the games this year and next year, they're not going to get to enjoy the success of this Raiders team once they're in L- uh, Las Vegas. No, that's a, that's a really good point. I think I saw you tweet that too, but I, and I didn't really fully get what you, I mean, I got what you're saying, but now that you're saying it out loud, it actually makes sense because they have five first round picks in the next two drafts. I mean, that is a ton of draft capital. You, and you might come away with five terrible players. If you're not good at evaluating, if you're not good at evaluating, you might not come away with your quarterback, assuming Derek Carr is not the answer. And it would stand to reason that he's not the answer given how things are going with this Raiders team. Um, you know, what do you do? I mean, this is just a slap in the face to these Raiders, these Oakland fans though. I mean, they're, they're playing for Vegas. We don't know where they're going to play next year. Uh, this is a Raiders team that's probably going to end up with a top two pick, I think. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, and that's great, but they don't necessarily know that it's going to pan out. I mean, right. from, from the success John Gruden had in the past, and maybe I'm wrong, and, and please tell me if I'm wrong in this this uh, statement. He won with veteran players on that team. Oh, he, he stinks! You know, he stinks at drafting. He stinks at drafting. Right. Yeah. So, so we're all of a sudden now excited that he has all these draft picks. <laughs> and he straight away the talent that someone else was able to bring to that team. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and and if history is going to repeat itself, Khalil Mack went to the Bears. And then ended up being, you know, on, on a tear and helping improve that defense. That was already a pretty good defense, right? Yep. So if Amari Cooper goes to Dallas and he all of a sudden starts, um, you know, this this pass attack for the Cowboys just starts to open up, and and he was that you know key ingredient that was missing, and now Dak Prescott's a different quarterback. How's that going to make John Gruden look again? Regardless of getting <laughs> a first round pick, like hindsight's going to be twenty twenty in this one. And I just wonder if Amari Cooper's now going to go to Dallas. Uh, be revitalized and end up having a, a better season and all of a sudden looking like the receiver the Raiders were hoping to be. If he goes for a 1,000 yards down the stretch, it's going to look very bad. Uh, the one thing that I worry about with this trade for the Cowboys, or actually the two things, uh, one, almost a year ago to the day, on October uh, 8th, 2004, or 2000, excuse me, October 4th, 2008, or October 14th, 2008, who cares what the date is, you get the point. They traded a bunch of picks to the Lions to get Roy Williams, um, which was one of the worst trades in Cowboys history, and they gave Roy Williams at the time a $54 million extension, Brady, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to have to give Amari Cooper some kind of extension uh, in a similar but larger range because he's he's got a $13 million fifth-year option next year. When you give him a first-round pick for that guy, you're basically saying, we're going to extend you. Let's figure this out, right? 
That's yeah, that's fine. I mean, and, and how it typically works is, you know, usually the agent will go and they'll say, you know, hey, we've got a deal in place, but but here's the thing: the Dallas Cowboys are trading for the player. They know he's got only one, you know his fifth year option left. It's a lot of money, and, and they would like to maybe try to renegotiate a longer term deal. They can go ahead and just say, yeah, you go ahead and do that. It's not tampering. Uh, the trade's going to be maybe contingent upon that. Mm. So maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not. And maybe they're okay with paying that amount of money, even though the Cowboys are kind of tight on the uh, on the salary cap. Um, so we'll see how things pan out. But typically those things go on behind the scenes with the agent and the teams just to be able to make that deal um, you know, get, get done. Uh, let's talk about the Jacksonville Jaguars. They are headed to London to play the Philadelphia Eagles. Two teams really struggling. Three and four. Um, uh, you know, conference championship, uh, one Super Bowl champion in the Eagles. The Jaguars very close to playing the Eagles in the Super Bowl, and both defenses look bad. Uh, Doug Marone had benched Blake Bortles for Cody Kessler in the middle of of the game last week, a loss to the Texans, an embarrassing loss against a quarterback with a punctured lung. Um, he's now going to start him in London. Do you think that? This has lit a fire under uh, under Blake Bortles, and as I'm reading our, our text exchange about this, I realized that I, I missed your joke that Blake Bortles loves the the, the British uh, pudding, and that's why he loves playing in London. <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna be honest. He plays some of his best football. He does. In he's really good in London, um, Sir Blake Bortles. He's really, he's really good in London. I I wonder if it, at some point Doug Moran was having the conversation and was like, you know what, you know, let's just start Cody. Let, let, we got to find a spark. We got to do something. And then someone tapped and said, "Hey, uh, hey, coach, you know Blake's really good in London, right? Like, the, <laughs> like this is what he does. He just plays terrible, and then he goes to London, drinks a little uh, English breakfast tea, Some has a little bit of the pudding, and then he uh, he just goes ahead and plays great. And then he comes back over and he, and he just you know changes face. Um, but in, in all seriousness, <laughs> he looks like he's lost confidence. Like he looks like the guy you watch on Saturdays that drops back, doesn't have his first read, and just looks to run." Like, he forgot that he's an NFL quarterback and that there's all these rules that are made to help you be a better passer. Like, the advantage <laughs> of interference and the emphasis on illegal contact. Like those are all made so you can be good. Um, it's, it's odd, though. I mean, literally, he drops back and almost looks to run after his first read. And I don't know if that's just a lack of his growth and development, if he's lost so much confidence now in the way he's played. I'm not sure what you chalk it up to. In any sense, this is another example of a team that doesn't have a plan after Blake Bortles. And they're going to need to, because I think they could potentially trade him after this year. I know they could cut him, but they'd still own a little bit of money against the dead cap, but I'm, I'm sure they could figure out a way of reducing that number. Um, but they're going to have to look to the draft for sure. And can we just stop with the rumors of trading for Eli Manning just because of Tom Coughlin connection? Yes. Like, it would just it, – it would be awful. Like, let's not do that. Why? Why? I mean – why would the why would the I mean I get the I get why the Giants would do that to get out from under his contract but like there's just way too much that would go into that sort of trade for it to possibly right. but, be but a, people people have said that and I'm sitting there thinking to myself first off if you're the Jaguars how is that making your team any better based on how Eli's yeah. played and and if you're Eli I mean you're going to a less talented team out around you I mean the offensive line of Jacksonville isn't that much better and you definitely have have less weapons there to throw to so. I mean, look, it'd be a bad situation for Eli. It'd be a bad situation, um, you know, really for, for the you know Jaguars based on what they're getting in him. Yeah, I, I don't think the Jaguars are making that trade at all. By the way, here are uh, here are the last 
few games in uh, in London for Sir Blake Bortles. 20 of 31 for 244 yards and four touchdowns in a 44-7 shellacking of the Ravens last year. Uh, then he went... 19 of 33 for 207 and two touchdowns in, in a, in a 30 to 27 victory over the Colts. And the year before that, 13 to 29, eh, two touchdowns, one interception in a, uh, in a 34 31 win over the Buffalo Bills. So but that's you, good. That's good Blake Bortles. That is like, good. That's yeah. good for him. Yeah, it's great yeah. for him. Now, let's, we, let's, let's call him Sir Blake. We'll that's just what call I'm saying. Him Sir Blake Sir, Bortles. Sir, Sir Bortles. I like yeah. Sir, Sir Blake, either one. Do you think they have a chance to beat the Eagles? And are the Eagles any good? Um, I think the Eagles are better than how they've been playing. I mean, Carson Wentz finally looks you know, even closer and closer to what he was last year. Um, really efficient game last week. Uh, and I think he's you know, throwing more confident. He's, he's stepping into throws better than he was, and I think moving a little bit better. The concern is, is really the pass defense. I mean, they're good against the run. Um, they're not getting quite as much pressure as they were last year, which is expected. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I, I made this analogy the other day. When I was like in fifth grade, we had a teacher who told us that we all get an A to start the, start the uh, year. And so everyone went home, they're telling their parents, hey, I've got an A, I've got an A. And they said, but think about it. Like, here's the lesson. You've got to keep that A the rest of the year, which means you've got to keep you know, obtaining perfection every single day you come in there. Mm. And what you found out by the end of the year was it's harder to keep an A than to earn an A. Mm. So the, the moral of the story is for the Philadelphia Eagles, it's harder for them, I think, to maintain that level of play that won them a Super Bowl last year than what, you know, and be able to do that again and replicate it again this year. And that's, that's something that I think you see from their defensive front. You've seen from their secondary. I don't think their O-line is playing as good either. Like, people want to make it about the, run, the issues of running back and the injuries. To me, it's more of the O-line because their protection hasn't been as good and they haven't been as good, you know, creating holes and, and paving the way for the running back. So it hasn't been about as much injury. It's really been about the thing that I think won them games last year, you know, up front on their defensive line and offensive line. Uh, all right. Also, Minnesota, bad offensive line, but the best receiver in the history of the NFL. And Adam Thielen, he keeps getting it done. Minnesota four two and one. Uh, they're starting to round into shape, right? And if, the, if that offensive line starts going, and Latavius Murray's rushed the ball pretty well the last two weeks, they get Dalvin Cook back. Kirk Cousins is playing nice. This Vikings team's sort of flying under the radar a little bit, big time. And and I think early on you were a little you were concerned because the one thing they could hang their hat on, and I've always been able to hang their hat on you know, was their defense, yeah. right? And, and just how good that they've been. And then they kind of took a step back early on, but they've, they've found themselves in the past couple of weeks as well. And maybe that's a product of, you know, their running game improving and the way Latavius Murray looked like uh, or how he looked last week. Kirk Cousins has, has been solid the entire year. He really has. So, you know, all in all, like I look at what they're doing with Thielen as, you know, the reason why John D. Filippo, their, their offensive coordinator, should get – you know, more credit for the job that he's done. I don't think people understand how good he's been creating ways of getting Thielen open, um, not forcing him to have to always win a one-on-one isolated matchup, and, and moving him around. And, he, and he, look, he's smart enough and good enough to play a different position. So it's been, it's been you know, partially, obviously, Adam Thielen, his, his brilliance, but also John D. Filippo, too. Uh, Browns and uh, Hugh Jackson. Are, Hugh Jackson wants to take more ownership of the offense, which is – the whole problem that he had when he went winless last year and brought in Todd Haley, does this spell doom for Hugh Jackson? Kind of does in my mind, right? I, I feel like when, when the ship's sinking and you're the captain, um, give me the wheel. The one yeah. Calling the shots. Yeah. It's like, 
Well, we hit the iceberg. Uh, well, I'll just I'll take it from here. I'm, I'm supposed to get out of the ship anyway. So, because, I mean, look, Todd Haley's going to be probably the guy that gets the interim head coaching uh, spot if the Browns don't start winning because they're 2-4-1. I don't know that they're trending in the right direction based on how things have gone. And all of a sudden, people have, have cooled off on Baker Mayfield being the second coming of, of Christ. So uh, we're getting to a point now where I, I think we can admit that like maybe this team is more compet- is, is a more competitive team but they're not going to be a team that's going to be able to compete and win the AFC North. So, um, like, like this is a good step this year. Maybe they'll win a few more games, uh, but let's see how this thing pans out. But Todd Haley could very well be the next interim head coach, if not Greg Williams, their DC. So, um, yeah, of course, if you're Jackson, he now he, he kind of re, you know went back on his comments and said he's not going to get involved with the play calling, but maybe he will exercise his ability to veto a play call from time to time, uh, which which should make for even more entertainment and fun with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, I do think that this is the best-case scenario for John Dorsey. Like, you'd love to be winning these games, but they're competitive in most of these games, so he's showing Jimmy Haslam, like, hey, look, I got the talent in here to be competitive, but he's also like, hey, you know, Hugh Jackson's screwing it up, so he can sort of, like, exercise his cachet and say, hey, look, uh, you know, time – Time to, time to get rid of Hugh. It was nice to, nice to keep around. Okay, we're going to talk very, very quickly and then get out of here about two, the two worst teams in football. The, uh, the Buffalo Bills and, uh, the Arizona Cardinals. They each have, uh, different issues. Uh, the Buffalo Bills have an issue at quarterback. They decided to bring in your old friend, uh, who you played with in Cleveland when you were drafted, Derek Anderson, uh, who, who's actually he is old enough that I believe he's in between your age and my age. Like that makes him really, yeah. that makes him really old. He's 35 years old and uh, he's starting for the Buffalo Bills. How did, this is one of those like, you know, the talking head song, this is not my beautiful house. Um, that's how, <laughs> like, this is not my beautiful quarterback room. How did the Bills get here? Yeah, well, they, they've, they've just mismanaged that position so, so bad over the past year. I mean, for starters, <clears throat> Maybe you could have had Tyrod Taylor. I mean, he at least was under mm-hmm. contract, so you could have had him this year as a backup option, even if you wanted to to take on Josh Allen. So that was there for you. But you decided to trade him and move on. So then you sign a guy in AJ McCarron, who you paid the bulk of his pay. I believe what four million mm-hmm. of the five or whatever he was going to make this year. You paid it, and then before the season even starts, you trade him away because you don't feel like you're going to have a use for him. Because you're so confident in Nathan Peterman and what he showed you last year and during the course of the offseason. Yeah, I said it at practice. Not a game, not a game, but practice. Thank you, Alan. So then they start the season. They start the season with Nathan Peterman, and that goes as about you would expect. So obviously they can't go back to him because he's been historically so bad with nine interceptions in his first 79 pass attempts. He's, he's never been done 11% of his passes go for interceptions. That's in, it's incredible. It's, I'm not even mad. Yeah. I'm amazed. Exactly. It is astounding to think that that they would put him or potentially have him and put him back in a game. So they can't. So what do they do? They look around and they say, all right, well, like, where do we go from here? Derek Anderson, he's been a backup. He's been in Brian Dable's system back in 2009 with the Cleveland Browns. That was almost a decade ago. Now the offense has changed. I found that out in 2012, three years later after you know my last time with them, and the offense has changed, changed a decent amount. Because so I can only imagine – uh, what he's seeing. But the bottom line is, that's where they're at. If Josh Allen can't play, a guy who, you know, has, has been a backup for a long period of time now, who's, you know, in his mid-30s, has to take over this team. And, and, I, and I talked with DA for a while about this because, you know, as, as a former player and, and just always those urges of wanting to go out there and play and do it, 
you know, being a backup is one thing, but getting the chance to start, which is what the opportunity was when he signed on for this, you know, it, it's different. You know, that's the opportunity to be the guy to play the game. And even if you get your ass kicked, you know, you're, you're, you still are part of playing the game. And, and you kind of smile, and, and that, that part of it's fun. So he wanted another shot to, to do it mm. one more time. And, you know, it's going to be tough because you go back and look at the three interceptions this past week. Two weren't on him. I mean, one it was a poor decision, bad throw. But one was just a little bit out in front. I thought the wide receiver could have ran through his, his break better. The other one bounced off the guy's hand. So aside from that, he was decently efficient. And I, I don't know that, you know, anyone else could have done much of a better job given the circumstances of what he walked into. All right. In Arizona, um, the, the Mike McCoy was fired by the Arizona Cardinals and the common perception. So two things on the Cardinals. One, Mike McCoy's fired. The common perception is, okay, Byron Leftwich is going to step in and this will be fine. Uh, and then the other thing is Patrick Peterson is demanding a trade. Do you think he gets moved? Very non sequitur questions for the Cardinals. Yeah, I, I think Patrick Peterson could potentially get moved. And look, it, it's the right time. I think he would field a pretty high offer, like a first and a third. I don't know if, it, if that's too much or no, that's like too much, but that's that's what I think because he's under contract. He's still playing in his prime. He can still play for a, a long period of time too, uh, at a very high level. And I think there's some teams right now that could use his help, <clears throat> New Orleans Saints, um, to, to put him out there <laughs> LSU, as, man. As, as a quarterback. Yeah, came from LSU, very familiar with their environment. That would make a lot of sense, but again, are they willing to, to to do that? They've already given up some for Marcus Davenport that they traded up to get in the first round this past year. Um, but again, he would fit in. He's going to make any team he goes to better. It just comes down to what the, what the asking price is. That would make a lot of sense. Um, and then, what was the other thing you touched on? Or asked about? Uh, Mike McCoy out uh, out uh, as offensive coordinator. How does this? He's, yeah, he's a scapegoat. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. It's not on him. That's this team's not very good around the quarterback position. You know, they could say what they want. You know, with Byron Leftwich, he played the game. So did Mike McCoy. And and by the way, it's not as if Byron Leftwich now has the opportunity to install his own offense or drastically change things. He's got to call what Mike McCoy spent the entire offseason putting in. So it becomes extremely difficult when you're a play caller now thrusted into calling you know someone else's offense and and calling the plays and everything else. I mean, you could change little things here and there and tweak it, but you can't really make wholesale changes. So that's the difficulty for Leftwich. And the fact that he's never really called plays before. So he doesn't know his identity. He doesn't know how he's going to react in certain situations and what his tendencies are. So those are all sorts of things that I think are working against the Arizona Cardinals the rest of this year. How much does it matter for a coach like that who's a, I mean, he's been a coach for two years, I think. How, like, like his game, his game week install. I mean, how, I mean, I know he played a lot, but, you know, does he, is that going to, it doesn't matter because they stink, but, I mean, is that going to affect negatively affect Josh Rosen? I mean, how you know is he going to stop running David Johnson up the friggin' middle of the offensive line? I mean, like, what's like any chance of that? Yeah, I'm sure he's going to try to come in with some ideas and mix some things up. Uh, but again, he's got to come in with a plan. And I, I don't know Byron, but I trust that from his NFL experience playing and starting, he's got an idea and feelings on what he'd like to do. He's been probably preparing for this moment. You know, even as a backup quarterback. You go through scenarios and you're thinking in your head, this is the play I'd call here. Mm. I mean, that's why a lot of quarterbacks end up being coaches, especially ones that, that play that backup role at times, because you are preparing that way, um, even when you're a player. You're always thinking about what's a good call, what's a bad call, you know, what you'd like to see or, or would have done differently in that scenario. So he's, I'm sure he's prepared for the moment. It's just, again, it's, hard, it's really hard to do once you get into the season because you're so limited on the practice time that you have 
to be able to figure out all the things that are essential to calling plays. All right, next time uh, if something happens to Brian Kelly, I'm gonna I'm gonna start an internet rumor: Brady Quinn for Notre Dame head coach. Would you take it if they offered you? <laughs> I mean, you don't turn that job down, I but know. I would be <laughs> ill-equipped. I, I would have to hire a bunch of like former head coaches uh, to to be like position coaches and coordinators. I'd, 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 you know what? I bet I'd be the lowest paid head coach ever because I would just make sure all my assistants were very handsomely rewarded and paid. I respect you so much more. That I would be ill-equipped for that job. And that's fine. That's perfectly fine. I, I, I would too. All right, Brady Quinn, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, buddy. Uh, a lot of fun, man. Looking forward to it next week.